The 70th anniversary of Brown v. Board of Education will arrive next year, yet schools in the United States remain highly differentiated by race and ethnicity. This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. The explanations for this continued segregation or at least differentiation by race in our schools are multiple. Here are a few of them. One, a Republican conservative alliance is blocking all efforts to desegregate. Two, whites have migrated to suburbs when cities desegregated. Three, a conservative Supreme Court is backing away from the Brown decision. Four, blacks like to attend schools in their own neighborhoods. They don't want to be bussed hither and yon. Five, private schools and charter schools provide new opportunities to segregate students by race. Six, the constantly shifting balance of power on the Supreme Court has left it unable to decide what it's decided. Seven, affluent liberals enjoy segregation. They want desegregation for everyone but themselves. Well, I'm running out of counting, but you get my point. There's a lot of explanations floating around out there. Now, Shep Milnick, a political science professor at Boston College, bites the bullet to provide us with a new book entitled The Crucible of Desegregation, The Uncertain Search for Educational Equity. In this book, he takes a close, balanced look at all the claims and counterclaims, and he gives close attention to the evolution of constitutional doctrine with respect to desegregation. So I'm delighted to have Shep Melnick with me today on the Education Exchange. Shep, thank you for joining me. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, Shep, let me put the big uh, question first. Why have schools remained so racially differentiated, despite the fact that the Supreme Court in 1954 said that legal segregation was unconstitutional? All right, you gave quite a list there. A number of those factors are remain very important. But at the top of the list, I would say two things. First, as we know, neighborhoods and schools are racially um, differentiated. I like your word differentiated. That uh, there are, we have still have extensive residential separation of the races, unfortunately. That's getting a bit better, uh, but it still is quite severe. Moreover, there are many large urban areas that are overwhelmingly Black, Hispanic, and Asian, that the number of whites in many city school systems has declined precipitously, in part because of what is known as white flight, but also because of the growing number of Hispanics in the population and especially in the age groups that children go to school. I'd say the other second really crucial thing is that the Supreme Court never called unconstitutional what we think of as de facto segregation. That is um, the separation, differentiation that is a result of residential patterns. The Supreme Court in the early 1970s moved towards making de facto segregation de facto unconstitutional never endorsed that, backed away from it. And as you said, the Supreme Court has been uh, flip-flopping on this issue ever since. 
And they also ran into the problem that if you want to say that schools have to be racially balanced, uh, you have to create mega school districts that are difficult for many reasons. Moreover, uh, the the that problem becomes all the more severe when the number of white children's in metropolitan areas decreases as it has significantly. So I'd say one of the th big uh, themes of my book is we have to be much more careful about what we mean by segregation and desegregation. Do we mean whites and blacks going to school together? Do we mean separation as a result of explicit uh, legal uh, uh, requirements and government policies. What do we mean by it? And uh, I, to get a better grasp of what we mean by desegregation, I think would be the starting point of having a better policy on the topic. Shep, you bring up the extremely interesting point uh, that the Latino migration into the United States accounts for um, the major demographic change that has occurred over the last 50 years. They're, they're now uh, a larger share of our student population than the Black population mm -hmm. is, and they're by far the most dynamic uh, element in the, in, the, in the enrollment figures. But of course, you also have an Asian population that's much more sizable than you used to have. And then further, you have a group that's called interracial or you know some kind of a mixed uh ethnic origins that's becoming a sizable group i mean what does it mean to say that you have segregation when you've got such a diverse population uh much more diverse than 1954 when the this when you really could sort of decide to divide the world into white and black but those that kind of polarity just doesn't make much sense in this uh current situation how is the court uh, dealt with that issue? Uh, the court dealt with this issue in the way that dealt with many desegregation issues by ignoring it. Uh, the, as you said, when Brown versus Board of Education was decided in 1954, it was really a question of white and black because those were the categories in place by law in the South. It's really, we dealt with the Jim Crow South and the white and black categories were embedded in law. It wasn't until the early 1970s, uh, specifically the 1973 Keys case in Denver, that the Supreme Court started to confront that a little bit because Denver had a larger Hispanic than black population. Uh, but the court has never really uh, taken a look at that. And I'll just mention one of the big issues once uh, Hispanics came into play was that what Hispanic parents and Hispanic leaders wanted was above all training for English learners for obvious reasons. They wanted their kids to learn English. They didn't want them to sit in the classroom and not know what was going on. But that often meant that you wanted to have a critical mass of Hispanic students in a school so you could have good EL programs. And they really found themselves at odds with many black leaders because they weren't nearly as uh, as in favor of sending their kids outside the neighborhood. And the same thing is true when the Asian question first came up. Of course, that was in San Francisco. And the leading opponents of busing in San Francisco were Asian parents because they wanted their kids to be able to come home after school and go to Chinese language and culture classes. Um, and eventually, they were, in a, they were exempted from the busing orders 
which shows the complexity of desegregation when you're dealing with different racial groups that have different priorities. That's one way in which the Supreme Court has sort of, uh, you know, ducked uh, and and tried to have it all uh, both ways. Mm -hmm. But that's one of the themes of your book, that the Supreme Court did not speak with clarity. It, it left lower court judges uh, sort of at sea as to how to decide cases, and they were making decisions all over the place. So what would you recommend the Supreme, what should the Supreme Court have, have done? Sure. Well, let me first start off by saying that the Supreme Court in 1954 and 1955 decided the Brown cases. Um, they did not say what, what local school districts had to do. They said desegregate with all deliberate speed. We're not going to tell you what that means. And they waited 15 years before they came back. Um, as Justice Black once said, there's been a lot more deliberation than speed. Uh, the uh, the lower courts, in the meantime, were trying to figure out how to change schools in the Deep South because they remained in just completely segregated through 1967, 1968. Uh, less than 1% of Black students in the Deep South went to school with any white children at all. That can't beat desegregation. Uh, so, but when they came back to the issue in 1968, um, the Supreme Court said, what we need is um, schools that are not don't have any clear racial identification. We want a unitary school system. And they didn't really say what that was. Um, they didn't say whether de jure segregation is unconstitutional, although they hinted at it a bit. And it really wasn't until the- I mean de facto. They didn't say whether de facto constitutional. Yeah, right. Right. They they didn't. But let me put it rather than use these often misleading racial terms. Let me say it more more bluntly. They did not say whether all schools should be majority white um, to end um, uh, racial isolation. So I, what I would say is that while the court was um, kind of feeling around, most of the lower courts were adopting an understanding that said that the problem is not legal segregation, it is racial isolation. That is black school kids going to schools that are overwhelmingly black. And the argument was that that is educationally bad uh, because it will uh, stigmatize black students, it will lead to fewer resources for black students, and it will lead to black students going to school with other low SES students. So a lot of this argument was a de facto argument about having uh, uh, SES, uh, low SES students going to school with other low SES students. And there was also a claim that that would uh, give uh, black students a sense of inferiority, that they had been isolated and separated from uh, the white population. Exactly. The, the, the so-called stigma argument that was embedded in the 1954 decision in the famous footnote. Um, and I'll just say that um, the, the footnote 11 on the famous doll study um, was pretty lousy social science at the time. So the, the, for the footnote, I think, said that a study of dolls showed that uh, black kids like white dolls better than black dolls. Exactly. Um, the only problem was that before those kids went to school, they were more likely to choose the white dolls. 
And if they went to a uh, integrated school in Boston, they were even more likely to choose the white dolls. So it didn't seem that uh, the educational system had much to do with it. Um, that was uh, by the late 1960s, surprisingly, um, it's uh, it, we found that black students had more higher self-confidence, higher self-regard than white students. That might have been a result of the civil rights revolution, the black, black pride. Um, but certainly that argument was not very powerful by the time you got to the major busing uh, and desegregation cases. Well, Shep, uh, you say that the Supreme Court did not speak with clarity, but maybe caution was the best way to go, given the intense opposition to desegregation in the South, given the reluctance of Northerners to desegregate their schools, they actually will end up fleeing to the suburbs once mm -hmm. the schools desegregate uh, within the large central city. So there's a lot of resistance out there in society to dramatic changes within mm -hmm. the schools. So maybe the Supreme Court recognized the momentous task they were undertaking, and in order to protect the the legitimacy of the court, they knew they had to act with caution. Uh, can't you be sympathetic with the problems that the court was facing at the time? Sure. And I, Chief Justice Warren's decision in Brown 1 and Brown 2 uh, were designed to placate the South rather than inflame the South uh, and to go slowly, hoping the South would go along. But of course, it didn't go along. Um, you had massive resistance. So that entirely plausible argument about incrementalism, about prudence, turned out uh, not to produce the result that they expected. So I would say that when you get to the late 1960s, when you had the political support from the Civil Rights of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, then the Fifth Circuit did act with really an iron hand, and I think they did just the right thing. They said, we need to have a clear standard of what constitutes desegregation, uh, and they announced that basically you have to have the same ratio in virtually every school that you have in the school district as a whole, because the South has uh, acted unconstitutionally um, for decades, and it's created this Jim Crow system that we have to uproot. Um, and they did that quite specifically, um, saying that, to repeat, virtually every school has to have the same racial balance as the school system as a whole. And that reduced, that, that eliminated school desegregation in the South. And we have some recent data from the National Bureau of Economic Research that in the South, improvements in the quality of education for Black students and the achievement really went way up, and that had a long-lasting effect. Um, now, in the North, that is where this, the, uh, the court really waffled tremendously. And what I would say is that there can be some advantage in experimentation. So I basically allow the district courts to try a variety of things, which they did. But if you have experimentation, you want to have evaluation. Which of these things worked and which of them didn't? And that's where the court completely fell down because the court, the Supreme Court did not say, go forth and experiment. They said, uh, here are our standards, follow them. 
but there were no clear standards and we have no evaluation of what worked and what didn't as the court was proceeding. Um, and judges were not interested in that question of how is this working as opposed to that. So it was an opportunity for experimentation that failed. Well, now, today, Chief Justice Roberts is praised for his caution. He tries to avoid deciding anything unless it's clearly presented before him in the case at hand. Uh, so, for example, we have in, in the abortion case just decided, uh, he wanted to uphold the Mississippi law, but he also didn't want to overturn Roe v. Wade. He wanted to have it both ways. Mm -hmm. uh, nobody uh, agreed with him, I guess, or not enough people on, on the court agreed with him in this regard, so that, in fact, we get an overturning of Roe v. Wade, uh, which a lot of people think was, was may have been unnecessary. It, it, it wasn't presented clearly in the case at hand. So uh, are you saying that Justice Roberts' cautious approach is not the right way to go. <laughs> um, I, I, I actually you often find myself agreeing with uh, Chief Justice Roberts, including in the Dobbs case on abortion. But let me say that on on in many of these race cases, um, Chief Justice Roberts um, has been quite clear, uh, and that is particularly important in the parents involved case in two thousand seven, where he said. What Brown meant was you cannot discriminate on the basis of race. You cannot assign kids to school on the basis of race. The uh, way to stop racial discrimination is to stop discriminating on the basis of race, which that was his final line in that case. Now, the, if you're looking for the case for incrementalism in busing uh, and desegregation, the place to look is at Justice Kennedy's concurrence in that case where he said, well, you ordinarily can't use racial classifications, but you can do this and this and this and this and this, and you can use it as a last resort. Um, that was the type of meandering uh, guidance um, that uh, left, I think, schools befuddled, um, but also was adopted by the Obama administration and the Biden administration saying, look, you have so much discretion as how to use uh, racial classifications or substitutes for racial classifications that I think that we're kind of back in that undecided area where schools really are not clear what is being allowed and what isn't, especially given the fact that I think there is a growing majority on the court for simply saying you can never use racial classifications in assigning kids to school. Well, this brings up the interrelationship among the branches, the fact that the segregation policy and many other policies are the result of a conversation between the courts and the and the executive branch and, and, and congressional decision making. So um, what role do you think Congress and the presidency had in this whole story that you have unfolded in your book? Are they the key actors, are they the critical actors and not the courts? I think the answer to that is quite clear that Congress and the president have been uh, negligent of trying to address this issue. There, uh, of course, in 1964, Congress and the president took a huge, important and beneficial step, saying that, number one, uh, school desegregation is unconstitutional. We agree with the court. Number two, the Department of Justice has the authority to bring suits to help the NAACP uh, litigate these cases. 
most importantly, number three, Title VI said that any institution that receives federal funds uh, cannot discriminate on the basis of race or national origin. And fortunately, the next year we passed the Elementary and Secondary Education Act that prodded a lot of money to school systems, especially in the South, the poorest part of the country. Uh, and what that meant was you had a carrot as well as a stick and the Office for Civil Rights in the Department then uh, health, education, and welfare could establish guidelines on what desegregation meant. They did so saying you had to desegregate a number of schools, and this is uh, you had to get at least 20% um, uh, in many school districts, I think extremely beneficial. So you, there you see in the, in the 1960s, the advantage of all of the branches government operating together. Once the courts started to require um, busing to receive to achieve racial balance then there was a lot of opposition in congress congress passed a number of pieces of legislation to stop that they congress has been quite specific we oppose de jure legal segregation but we do not think there's a constitutional requirement to create racial balance in schools um the only thing that stopped congress from uh taking stronger action um, to oppose busing was the Senate filibuster. The, the tool of the old Southern segregationists was used by liberals like Ted Kennedy uh, to stop further restrictions on busing. Um, would I have liked to see Congress and the president take a stronger stand to define what they mean? Because I think they were generally had good sense when they were able to act. I would have, but obviously on such a divisive issue, getting any action at all is difficult. But just a, uh, one final point, which is what what brought about desegregation in the South in the 1960s and early 1970s was this alliance between um, the Office of Civil Rights and the, and the courts. When they were acting on the same page, it was very effective. So now it seems like uh, the executive branch, maybe Congress as well, is moving in a new direction. They're, they're sort of, instead of focusing on segregation, they're sort of ignoring that issue or putting it to the side and talking about affirmative action. Mm -hmm. We see that, of course, in the courts with the Harvard case that could be decided this summer, uh, but we also see it in interpretations of uh, various uh, titles in the legislation that has been already enacted into law. So, is the issue now shifting from desegregation to affirmative action? And is that going to create a new battle between the courts and the executive branch? It's likely that there will be new tensions between, I'd say, democratic administrations, especially the Department of Education and the Supreme Court. Uh, let me just say that um, many of the issues you refer to um, about affirmative action um, are an indirect effect of a type of legal analysis that grew up during desegregation battle, and that is disparate impact analysis. So uh, should you assume, or to what extent should you assume, that if there is um, a deviation in the results of a school, employment, admissions to school, that if there's deviation between the percentage of Blacks, Hispanics, Asians, whites in the population and the ones to whom you give admissions or jobs, is that um, 
an indication that there might have been discrimination. So we we'll move away from intentional discrimination to some kind of dis disparate impact. Um, so number one question is, to what extent is that an indication of discrimination? And number two, if there is an indication of discrimination, what can or must schools, employers, or others do to remedy that? So if you can say, well, we are not discriminating, um, in order to avoid discriminating, we need to make sure we have a certain number of Blacks, Hispanics, Asians, whites in our school system or employment. That's um, the issues that we're facing now under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. Well, so on the one hand, you have this disparate impact line of reasoning and line of uh, litigation and, and executive decision-making that says that you must take into account the racial background of the applicant or whatever in, in order to avoid uh, imbalance. And on the other hand, you have the Supreme Court moving in the direction of saying, as they did in the Bakke case, and they probably will say in the Harvard case, if you start making the decisions on the basis of the racial background of a student, you are engaging in the very kind of discrimination that the Brown decision forbids. So it seems to me they're logically on opposite courses. Yes, I would say that what we're seeing now is two lines of judicial rulings coming into conflict with one another. And one of the interesting features here is that the court has always made a big distinction between institutions that have been guilty of discrimination in the past and those who haven't. If you come to the court with dirty hands, then you can be required to use racial uh, classifications in jobs and in and in um, assignment of students. So if you were guilty uh, of discriminating against uh, black students, let's say you were in, um, I don't know, Birmingham, Alabama, then you can be required and many school systems still are required to maintain racially balanced schools. But once you're released from those court orders, or if you have been shown never to discriminate in the past legally, then a whole different set of rules apply. So just um, the Louisville School District in Kentucky, that was one of the two uh, uh, school systems that was involved in the Parents Involved case in 2007, had been guilty of, of segregation. That was clearly true. Had gone through decades of court orders and been released from court orders. So after that, uh, the court said, no, now you can't use racial assignments. If you were still under court order, you could do it and you'd have to do it. Um, so that that might have that it told some school districts might not be a good idea to get out from under your court order. But the other feature of this is that many uh, colleges, and I think this is particularly true of Princeton, are saying we're guilty, guilty, guilty of past discrimination. Therefore, we should use affirmative action to make up for our misdeeds in the past. Um, uh, the Trump administration, to some extent, called their bluff on that and said, well, if you're guilty of, of racial discrimination, we're going to investigate you. And that's not exactly what Princeton expected. Well, so where is this all going to lead? I, 
uh, who, who knows, but I'm going to ask you a really uh, imaginary question here. Um, imagine that the Democratic Party wins a landslide victory in 2024. That's not beyond the possible. Mm -hmm. If the Republicans run Donald Trump, if the Republican Party splits and you have a Trump faction and a non-Trump, anti-Trump faction, both running candidates, it could be a, a gravy train for the Democratic Party. Uh, up and down the ballot. So you come in with a strong majority on Capitol Hill, you come in with a Democratic president, whether it's uh, President Biden or another Democrat, and all of a sudden you've got the conditions for passing legislation that says, you know what, we should enlarge the size of the Supreme Court. And then we could solve a lot of these problems if we had just if we just sort of helped out these older judges a little bit by giving them some younger judges to to uh, to give them assistance in their decision making, so do you see this as a possible consequence of all the caution and hesitation and deliberation and unsettling of the problems that have evolved over the decades? Certainly, there are many Democrats. Um, who uh, would look forward to that situation. Um, I think those Democrats with a bit of historical insight, you don't have to go too far back. You only have to go back to 1937 with Roosevelt's court packing plan and realize that can be pretty politically unpopular. Um, so I, and I think one of the things that might be taking the steam out from that argument is the political response to the Dobbs case. Um, which is that once you allow some of these issues to be subject to popular control, to put abortion questions back at the state level among legislators and governors, that has been a great benefit to the Democrats. Um, we've seen that around the country. Uh, so relying on the courts to do these things has been a mistake, I believe, for the Democrats on many issues. Uh, and I think Democrats are starting to recognize that, at least with regard to abortion. But I'd also say that when it comes to affirmative action, um, what we know for sure is that giving racial preferences in employment and in colleges is extremely unpopular. It is, it is very unpopular among whites. It never receives majority support among blacks and Hispanics. So do Democrats really want to push this issue? Or would they, more? I think, more likely say, listen, there are lots of ways we can proceed to improve education. We can, we can look at trying to have more socioeconomic status mixing in schools, which is perfectly legal and constitutional. Um, we can look at charter schools. We can look at uh, phonics, all kinds of things we can do. Um, and to kind of put so many eggs in the basket, of trying to have racial balance when there's no indication that by itself has much of an effect, that's not a winning prospect. Okay, so who are you going to blame the most for all of this? Uh, well, we started with the, the basic proposition. We had Brown. We haven't had uh, uh, racial balance in our schools for 70 years. Do we blame the liberals for pushing too hard on this agenda or the conservatives for not uh, seeing that progress is being made? Where where do you strike the balance? How do you allocate the blame? 
Well, yeah, I think this is a commentary on contemporary politics generally, I'd say, is that both the extremes egg the others on. Um, so what you have, the, kind of the, the massive resistance against uh, school desegregation in the 1950s and 60s. So in order to deal with them, you had to get increasingly tough, increasingly numerical. You needed these very clear guidelines. Um, and then um, we, uh, we use these guidelines um, in, place, in much different circumstances, um, especially in the North, um, where the problems were different. Uh, I do blame um, social scientists, <laughs> um, including a bunch of social scientists, I, I got to say, at Harvard, um, for greatly exaggerating their claims. They, they didn't have uh, nearly the evidence they did. I think they sold the courts on a bill of goods. If you just get more majority white students, everyone will be better off. Great. That wasn't true. Um, so I guess I would say is that uh, the the extreme left and extreme right are partially to blame, but I'd put the, the so-called sober social scientists um, in with um, the people who made things worse. Well, let's leave it at that. There's nothing better than to blame uh, social scientists and especially Harvard ones, uh, especially for a professor at, at Boston College. So thank you, Shep, for joining me on the Education <laughs> Exchange. Thanks, Bob. I'm always glad to uh, say, say something negative about Harvard these days. Well, I am pleased to have had with me today on the Education Exchange, Shep Melnick, a professor of political science at Boston College. His book, The Crucible of Desegregation, The Uncertain Search for Educational Equity, has just been published by the University of Chicago Press. And so thank you, Shep. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern time.